Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch Bonnie plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing and check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Hey there, Bill Nye here. And Corey Powell here. We recorded this episode about the science of James Bond way back in September. And since then, two very relevant things have happened. Okay, first of all, the actor Sean Connery died just last week. And he was, for many people, including me, the first and the best James Bond they ever knew. And then the producers of the forthcoming Bond film, No Time to Die, announced that the release date of the film would be delayed from this month to April of 2021. Yeesh. Uh, thanks, COVID. So we considered sitting on this episode until then, but we realized two things. Number one, it's never a bad time to talk about Bond. And two, we could really use a lighthearted palate cleanser after all the anxiety over the election. We might even do another special episode in April specifically about the new movie with a special guest. So stay tuned. And of course, turn it up loud! Ah! This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. I'm sure it's your homepage. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids are into. And I am joined today once again, my friends, by none other than science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Hello. It is good to be here, Bill, like you, and like I am sure many of our listeners, I'm a fan of the movies. A fan of the movies. I'm a fan of the movies. I'm a fan of gadgets. Ever since I was a kid, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was obsessed with, there was a little device you could get that would scramble an egg inside the shell, or a little device you could plug into the wall that would turn your lights on and off by just by sound, by going pssst, pssst. And it would turn the lights on and off. Obsessed with movies, obsessed with gadgets. You put them together. 
I'm a big fan of the James Bond movies, uh, and I believe are. you are as well. Yes, I am, Corey, because uh, as a kid, I thought James Bond was about the coolest guy imaginable. And along that line, I mean, he, of course, is no Corey S. Pell. But along that line, today, we have none other than the host of James Bonding. Yes, my friends, our guest is Matt Gorley. He is the consummate podcaster, also known for uh, Super Ego, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, Bananas for Bonanza, and, of course, James Bonding. And Matt Gorley, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Matt? Yeah, of course you can. And I'm huge fans of both of yours and science in general and James Bond. So I, I don't know. This may be this a peak be a for me. Fest. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> well, the whole thing is Bond relies. What I think appeals to all of the gadget people uh, is Bond relies on this technology to accomplish these extraordinary things. Now, uh, I am of a certain age. And so I grew up with the original James Bond movies and I read the original novels. And early on, James Bond was a guy. He was derived from the Cold War, uh, Ian Fleming. Everybody, it is interesting to note, or let me rephrase that, it is interesting to me to note <laughs> that uh, Ian Fleming not only wrote the James Bond series based on his work trying to win World War II, but he also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Same yeah. guy. Isn't that something? It the really guy was based on his experience. What ex I want to know what experience was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang based on? I That's think it I was the fact that he smoked 70 cigarettes a day and drank a whole bottle of gin, I believe, every day. So that's probably what combines those two things. Kept him going. Uh, so, Matt, <laughs> yeah. enough about me for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, we're a minute into this. Matt, what got you into it? I think my story is very similar, and it was just a bonding thing with my dad, no a pun intended. A bonding thing. Yeah, where we, my dad and I- It was bonding I, with my dad, too. Yeah, yeah and we just thing. go grab the whatever, just to pick a random bond off a of VHS store shelf and take it home. And then I remember Octopussy was my first one that we went to see in the theater. Wow. And so I have such a fondness for that. I mean, well, that's that. kind of a lesser film in my yeah. view. Yeah. And so for that reason, I think I like it more than most people. And that was that summer of 83 when Octopussy came out against Connery coming back and never say never again. And it was this big rivalry summer. So it felt like just an embarrassment of riches for a kid who loved Bond. Man. Okay. So we, we have to address the big issue first. Yeah. Your favorite Bond and your least favorite Bond. Well, I as well love Connery because he's classic and he's the first, but Daniel Craig has become my favorite Bond. I just here, 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 my love friends. Him. Yeah. He just brought, he brings some kind of, uh, I don't know, Quiet, like Quiet uh, yeah. anxiety. Well, you like, know, you've killed a lot of people. You've been a professional assassin. I mean, absolutely. you worked your way through college. How do you it's think stressful. I got into podcasting? That's right. It's stressful. Yes. And so uh, you end up drinking. Hence just, the drinking and the yeah, smoking. Just to deal with it. So yeah. this is all somehow so romantic that the guy <laughs> was somehow so cool in these extraordinary circumstances. And for me, you know, I became a mechanical engineer and all this stuff. For me, the whole, the guy that I like maybe more than Bond himself would be Q. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who watch the Science Guy show, and I hope there's a few of you, Keep in mind the opening sequence after the cold open, and you hear the music that everybody likes, that opening sequence where Uncle Bill is walking along talking to you is based entirely on Bond films with Q. So it's like instead of Bond and Q, 
Bill is Q and you, the viewer, are Bond, where Bill is explaining stuff to you and all this crazy stuff is going on behind him. <laughs> Q's walking along. Tear gas is going off. Guys wearing trench coats getting machine gun. Cars disappear. It's like, oh, yeah, Bond, I never joke about my work. We all wish we were that cool. Yeah. So, Matt, what happened? You watched Octopussy? Yeah, well, all you of thought, them. You thought this octopusy is so good. I got to see more of this. This stuff. was not my first. This is my first in the theater. I can't even okay. remember. I think I was steeped in Bond at such a young age. How some children have Mozart played into their mother's, you know, uh, midsections to give them some kind of intellect. I was probably oh, had so some John Barry on the, score. The, on the, the, bond, the Bond effect. Yeah, yeah, I think so. For better or for worse. Were you intrigued by him, or were you intrigued by the gadgets? Everything that that's the thing I think I love about Bond because even as they change actors, there's just something with the. F I hesitate to call it a formula because they definitely have that, but they play with the formula a lot. But that John Barry music and the Ken Adam production design of that kind of mid-century, five minutes into the future look is just something that those the sound and the sight of that is so pleasing to me. You could almost take Bond out of it completely, and I'd still five be minutes into the future. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, that's something the producers have used before that they want it to seem grounded in reality and recognizable as completely contemporary, but just one step ahead that that you're getting some tech and some ideas and some heightened character things that just are pushing the boundaries of reality. So it's not science fiction, but it's still got something that you can't see in everyday life. A reason to go to the movies, you know? Just for me, uh, you know, my parents are both veterans of World War II. Wow. This, th this effort in Britain to not lose World War II was just extraordinary. Yeah. And that's what um, Ian Fleming lived through, and that's how, why he created this guy, this guy that could go to Europe, speak all these languages, do all this extraordinary stuff. And in the gadgets was this always, for me, this element of surprise. <laughs> and I've been to the war rooms in Britain, and uh, they had this thing where they, they had secret messages in the buttons of the sport coat, of <laughs> yeah. a suit jacket. Yeah. And, and the secret message, the, the suit jacket, the buttons unscrewed clockwise. In other words, they, they tightened counterclockwise. They were left-handed threads. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And they reasoned that no German person would ever think of that. <laughs> and so, so does, that does seem like a very James Bond kind of trick. It's I mean, what, well, that's what I'm saying is from. that yeah. yes. in, you wouldn't think things. that if you open a briefcase, tear gas is going to go off. You wouldn't think that the guy's watch had this extraordinary ability to set off minds. So go ahead. Tell well, him, give I, us an I example. I love that example because you could imagine where the Germans are savvy enough to think, what if they've got secret messages in their coat buttons, and then they just try to unscrew it the typical way and give up right there, you know? Yeah. They're oh, I so guess close. not in this button. No. So, or, or, in, or in James Bond style, they would unscrew it. And if it turned out, if you unscrew it in the wrong direction, it explodes yeah, and it, or it knocks you out. Yeah. So... These couple gadgets we've just discussed are pretty reasonable, but some right. of them maybe aren't. Uh, we have an email from Patrick. What is the most scientifically improbable or impossible stunt in the gadget in the James Bond series? I have an idea, but he's at, well, he listed here. a lot here, to choose from. Yes. Goldfinger being sucked through the window of an airplane. Sure. The prosthetic fingertips in Diamonds Are Forever. Here's another one, which I know has been called out. Uh, but it really, it really stayed with me. Odd job, the the villain who has the 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 hat with the razor blade brim. Yeah, and he throws the hat, 
and it chops off the head of a statue. Yeah. And then it kills the woman. Even though it chopped off the head of the statue, it kills her without leaving even no, any visible mark. Yeah. My on her young whatsoever. friend, my young friend, <laughs> you, you have to read the book. All right, it, it's not a razor. It decapitates the statue uh, geologically, that like a geologist rock hammer. It hits the statue hard enough to. It, oh, it's, it's like I never like thought about it that way. Just, it just goes no, with no, the grain. So kids, it's just my wow. life's been a waste. So then the thing is so <laughs> massive, and he is so strong. He can throw it with such force that he can uh, break somebody's neck at, at 50 meters or whatever it is. That's and the so first time the, I've well, ever Billy, heard you that just, You have just rehabilitated the entire franchise. And yeah. so uh, yeah. Odd Job also in the book is uh, karate chopping bags of rice to build up tremendous calluses on his hands so that his hands are weapons of death. Yeah. And all this stuff, I don't know how many people are still listening, but all this stuff is just so... <laughs> Cool. And and Matt, you've just crystallized it by talking about five minutes in the future. Like if only I had that ability, you know, and I, of course, as you all know, I'm a big uh, ultimate Frisbee buff and former uh, player. And what if only I could throw a Frisbee? With the same skill and yeah. lethality okay. that Odd Job. Well, yeah, so this is one of the great questions, which is if you could have any one of the Bond gadgets, which one would you want? Is that your bill? Is that your choice? Uh, no, I think one of the cars. Well, like as stupid yeah. as it is in the movie, the invisible Aston Martin would be hard to turn down in real so, life. So testify, tell everybody about the invisible car. So it's in Die Another Day, which is, I think, generally regarded as the worst Bond film ever made. It's Pierce Brosnan's last, I think, from 2002 or three, And uh, John Cleese is playing Q at this point. And the tech behind the car isn't altogether, you know, unheard of. It's that sort of thing with photosensitive cameras on one side projecting the image to the other side. But it is done with such... Uh, ability to make the car completely invisible, including the glass and everything else. And so it's just a, a modern Aston Martin that can go invisible. And it does. And it ends up looking like Predator moving through the jungle. And it's just, it's too much sci-fi in your Bond movie. Sometimes they mix it up too much. They went they went 20 yeah. years in the future instead yeah, of Yeah, 20 minutes. years and five minutes into the future. What is, that's, let's say that's the most unrealistic Bond thing. Yeah. What's the most realistic Bond gadget? Well, the the from Russia with Love attaché case that just has it, it's as practical as can be. It does really exist, where you can press a button and a knife comes out. It's got some tear gas that ejects. It's got gold sovereigns hidden in the it's side. Got of gold, it. It's got yeah, it's got yeah. a strip of gold sovereigns in it. That has got to be the most reasonable of all James what Bond technologies. What's a gold sovereign? Everybody? It's just Help like us a, Americans a, a like I believe it's just a a gold coin, almost like pirate booty. But it's the type of thing that like I believe they gave like the paratroopers in D-Day at maybe something like that too. So you could use it as currency anywhere you went if you were It was a like a euro, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, the ones I hate are the ones that are so clearly reverse engineered for a plot point. Like in The World Is Not Enough, Pierce Brosnan is given a jacket that inflates into um, like a shelter bubble and it's used specifically in an avalanche, but he didn't know he was going to be in an avalanche. Yeah, so it just yeah. seems so contrived. Let's see. We have another question that I think is about the probability and ridicularity of Bond things. We have a voicemail from John. Yes, this I think, Matt, please comment as we say on the other side. Okay. 
Hey, Bill and Matt. Uh, John from Portland here. I just wanted to ask you about the implications of having a handheld laser gun space battle in such close proximity to Earth as it occurs in Moonraker. Is a laser gun a practical space weapon? What would happen if they shot it at Earth? How could this affect the ozone layer? Thanks for taking my question. Love you both. Oh wow! Yeah, and and I okay. guess the- I, I love that he's worried about the ozone layer. <laughs> uh, I think we need. To, I think we. I really feel like we need to start there and work backward. Um, could James Bond be harming the ozone layer? <laughs> <laughs> the question is. Oh, and and Michael Lonsdale just died. He was the villain in that film Moonraker. Um, but you guys would know this better than I would. Does a laser beam decay? So could those laser beams not only home, harm the ozone layer, but just go down to hit? people in the surface of the earth? So probably not. Now, if you are a taxpayer in the U.S., take heart that, yes, a giant coil weapon has been built. Coil, carbon oxygen iodine laser. And this was mounted in a 747 airplane. And you would fly it up uh, and point it at the bad guy's satellite and give it a bzzz, and uh, you would somehow disable its antenna or communications, oh, wow. electronics somehow. This sounds like the plot of a Bond film. Well, it does. And so uh, there, right now, all sorts of work is going on in statecraft to try to negotiate a new, treat, new treaties for space-based weapons. So I think when, when James Bond was created by Ian Fleming after World War II, there was, of course, tremendous concern about air power. But I don't think, but I mean, airplanes with bombs and shooting them down and so on. But I don't think anybody was thinking about space-based weapons. But now, perhaps we should all be thinking about them. So what do you think about the laser gun battle in space, Matt? I mean, it's ridiculous and fun. The fact that there's a crisis in space and then you just find out that the United States in 1979 has a colonial space marine force ready to go way before our current space force and that they just all meet up their two armies and battle in space guns floating through space is wonderful. I love Bond when he's at his worst and best. So you've got your your Casino Royale on the amazing end and then Moonraker's so campy and silly I love it. It's when they're kind of boring I, that I don't like them, you know, middle of the I mean, the road. Part, of what's, part of what's striking about that is, you know, if you remember the, I mean, the early 80s when President Reagan was pushing the Strategic Defense Initiative, you know, there were a lot of these ideas that were kind of lifted out of science fiction inspiration of, you know, using beamed energy weapons, warfare in space, satellites that would attack other satellites, uh, yeah, kinetic kill weapons in space. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that really seemed inspired by people who had watched these movies and thought, well, why can't we do that? And, you know, there was a sense of you know, people trying to make this fiction become real. Yeah, and so many of the Bond plots involve satellites specifically. It just always pops up. Uh, why do you think that is? I think it's just that, that uh, because Fleming was writing before that, by the time you got to the movies and they wanted to be a little bit into the future and they wanted to deal with, you know, things like SDI happening in the 80s, it was a way to involve a tech that was real, but also still had that allure of uh, the unknown in science fiction. Well, I think it's this old expression, the ultimate high ground, where if you have weapons in space and when was Moonraker the movie created? 79. 
79, which is pretty far along because he wrote the book in the 60s. I think. Yeah, and that's just about a rocket. But also Moonraker it featured the first space shuttle, and it was basically coordinated to come out when the first U.S. space shuttle did, but they delayed that. So Moonraker knew about the designs and has a space shuttle on it before the space shuttle ever launched. Yeah, that, it actually, yeah, it, pre- it previewed the shuttle a year before the first flight. Yeah. Whoa, so, I mean, there have been, been, pro- been those prototype flights aboard a 747 yeah. uh, from uh, like 1977 or 1978. And there's Five a great scene. in the future. Yeah, and in the cold opening of the movie, it's the, the Moonraker space shuttle on top of a 747 that is hijacked and flies off the 747 and destroys the 747. So, so you know uh, what you're getting right away. Along that line, Moonraker, the book, was a guy, uh, what's the villain's name, Matt? You're amazing. Hugo Drax. Yes, God, you're amazing. All right. Oh, who I'm not was, amazing. I'm a sorry son of a <laughs> So who was, he was a national, in the book, the fictional character, was a national hero. Right. Uh, in Britain, because he was going to put Britain, uh, going to make Britain a world uh, space-faring nation. Britain would therefore have the ability to deliver nuclear weapons like blue steel from blue steel was Britain's atomic bomb from uh, the high ground of space, but he turned out to be a bad guy. Yeah. Is there any analogy between Hugo Drax? And I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm just asking out loud between him and Elon Musk, where Elon Musk by many people is considered this great savior by bringing SpaceX uh, reusable rocket boosters and electric vehicles to market. Absolutely. And that theme is continued throughout the movies, too, with Christopher Walken in A View to a Kill. He plays Max Zorn, and he's a leading an industrialist that it becomes bad. Um, it happens again with um, Gustav. Great. I forget from Die Another Day. But that theme repeats, and people have called Elon Musk a type of Bond villain, because you could easily see him just crossing that threshold and then it's all over so why do you think that is why why is he like that or why is that something that keeps popping up i think it's uh, just, why yeah. yeah i think it's fascinating to think your captains of industry are working for the good of the people but it's kind of in their power to turn that power into something else and moonraker is one of my favorite novels because as crazy as the movie is it's one of the most grounded realistic books in fact i think the first third of it is just Bond, M, and Hugo Drax playing bridge. So it's oh not. Oh, God, Bond's really... always playing bridge. Yeah, and Baccarat. Yeah. Stick around for more science rules after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday. And French fries are a food group where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. 
Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Science Rules is back. We have an email from Michael Bloom, and he asks, In the opening sequence of GoldenEye, an unoccupied aircraft dives off a mountain cliff. 007 chases it off the cliff, vaults himself into freefall, catches up to the plunging aircraft, maneuvers himself inside it, pulls it out of a dive. It was arguably the highlight of the Pierce Brosnan era of the franchise, which is a shame because it occurred five minutes into that era. (laughs) But here, at last we get to the question, could Bond have accomplished any of this in real life? Let's uh, let's pick that apart. First of all, uh, Matt, what is your take on that stunt? Did it strike you as plausible, memorable? What'd you think? Uh, I couldn't tell you if it's plausible. I'll leave that to you guys, but I love it. It's my favorite moment of the entire Brosnan run, especially he also does that bungee jump off the dam in that same sequence. It's an incredible opening sequence. They do this in Moonraker as well. There's a whole skydiving fight where Bond is thrown out of a plane without a parachute and someone with a parachute is <laughs> is free falling far below him, and he's able oh, to kind of stunt. put his arms back in like. So that's a, a real sparrow. thing, you guys. I've yeah, seen. So it's just, you can affect it. You can you can influence your resistance. Well, not just that's a real thing. It's a thing that hardcores do uh, at air shows. They show off uh, one guy floating and the other guy catching up. Yeah, and I imagine and, uh, that plane would have some resistance, so he could catch up well to so it, there's right? an interesting and thing lift. a plane can only fly downhill so fast you know uh, <laughs> right because it's, it's designed for lift and so yeah. it can't fall yeah, straight yeah. down well, the way I'm- generally that's not a thing you want so uh <laughs> i think and uh, and what's the uh the mountain climbing sequence where he undoes his shoelaces and uh prussics that's what it's called tying yeah. prussics knots and goes up the for your rope. eyes only they get real climbers to really do that, right? And so they get real parachute people to really pull that stunt off, right? And they have to – I remember the guys had to wear weights. The second – the guy chasing the parachutist has to wear weights oh, wow. in order to make sure he can uh, catch up. I was going to ask you also, because we were talking about rockets and the Cold War and the ultimate high ground – how do you feel about this? Uh, we have a voicemail about the volcano rocket. Hi, Bill. I was calling uh, a question for you and Matt Gorley for your science of Bond. I was curious, in You Only Live Twice, when uh, Blofeld's rocket shoots out of the volcano layer, how many people inside that volcano layer were being incinerated by the, the fire coming off the back of that rocket? That was all. Thank you. Have a good day. It's a valid question. That, that uh, There's a similar kind of... Uh, set piece in the recent movie Ad Astra that has that same sort of issue. but And Moonraker, uh, Matt, too. He, he tries to assassinate yeah. Bond by put, like holding him down where the rocket exhaust will go. So uh, in Moonraker, the premise in the book was they had a big tunnel yeah. that would shoot it out of the White Cliffs of Dover. That's and right. One yeah. of the big things you have at Cape Canaveral or any rocket or so-called spaceport is a flame duct, a big hollow space to capture the flame and the big issue that has to be addressed is acoustics big uh, resonating sound frequencies that can just shake things apart so it seems to me if the uh, the only lived twice guy was a blowfeld yeah uh, set up enough of a flame duct the guys would be okay but here's my question how, how do you recruit hundreds of people 
to wear the same color coveralls and run around and be totally loyal to this guy who's trying to destroy the world. This is How my question you, with you, things, you have, to, you have to think that the pay the pay rate's pretty good compared to, like, the average wages where he is. I, I don't remember. Where, where is the volcano? Japan. In J- Japan. I have these same oh, okay, questions so. where it's not the, like, main science problem for me or, like, Kananga blowing up into a balloon. It's the psychology of the production of James Bond where people were all signing off on this is a viable ending for the film. I want to know that science. How did that? Well, I, f- I feel like this is this is the the Star Wars Death Star question of you know you know how they recruited the you know the the ten thousand yeah. engineers who are busy you know running around building like okay yeah this Death Star project I'm I'm on board with it yeah yeah as an engineer uh, in working on airplanes it's not that far to go from airplanes to kinetic kill vehicles on satellites. And you think you're doing your patriotic duty and so uh-huh. on. So do you recruit enough guys to wear the same color coveralls who believe it's their duty to undo the world order and create this new? Uh, well, I, I feel like you, you look at the, uh, I don't know, the North Korean army. Uh, I mean, you can sort of look around the world. There are very large unified armed forces where people fall in line. So I, 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 I'm willing to go along it's with that. It's so hard to as, tell in uh, these human psychology in these Bond films if these are ideological followers of the villain or if they're just literally there for a paycheck. They often just seem like jobbers. Like, hey, man, you know the benefits are good. Let's, I'll do it. He offers free dental. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in the book Doctor No, that's what it is. The people who grew up there are um, happy to have a good gig, happy to have a job. And they're in the book. They're uh, mining guano. They're making. Yeah. They're mining fertilizer. And okay, that's a job. So the guy has some eccentricities. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a job. But then later on, it seems like these people have embraced this big idea. Okay, let me ask you this. For example, in Goldfinger, they let him drive his own car, right? And but- so something goes wrong. Can we play that voicemail? That starts with "Hey, boyos," <laughs> about the ejector seat. Hey, boyos! I was wondering about the James Bond series. Uh, how feasible it is to get uh, an injector seat into? Um, oh, I don't know, an Aston Martin that can really like you know blast you off pretty high. Uh, okay, bye. <laughs> This actually seems like a fairly practical question. This is a guy who wants to know, could he, you know, and could he the, put this thing okay, together? Okay, Matt, you heard what the guy said. Yeah. Corey, this is yes. actually a practical question. It you is. Know, when you're going to put an ejector seat in your sports car, uh, how, would you, I mean, how would you go about doing that, Matt? Uh, tell us about that. Well, I think I'd take it straight to the uh, special effects supervisor there because they actually did it. I know they just launched a dummy, but that thing was practical. The, the roof popped off and the, the ejector seat goes out, so you can do it. In a fighter plane, the ejector seat is a two-stage rocket. It has Mm. a small rocket to get you started and then a big one to get you high enough to parachute down, Mm. even if you eject on the runway, right on the tarmac. So how did they do it in the car, in the movie, rather? I believe it was a spring A big old spring? Yeah, because it was a dummy. So I don't think it had to have a lot of... uh, Also, on the the set, that seems it seems more practical to do a spring-loaded thing on a set than a a rocket on the set. But it could have been an air cannon. I don't know. Well, they don't need to send the guy 
hundred meters, you know, no. high enough for his parachute to open. In fact, yeah. he'd rather it didn't. <laughs> no, in that, in that scene, he goes like ten or twenty feet up in the air. He just goes, "Whoa!" Yeah. And so, along that is a moment that maybe Matt, you would have insight on, where Bond is walking along with Q. Q shows him this remarkable car, carries these machine guns, which would be quite massive, by the yeah. way. It would change the performance of the vehicle. <laughs> a bulletproof steel thing behind you would change the performance of the car. A tank of oil, though, Corey, that's nothing. But <laughs> he flips open the stick shift and says, uh, you push this button and the roof blows off and this part ejects. And Bond says, you're joking with a British, you're joking. Yeah. That, to me, was a turning point where we no longer take this thing seriously. Yeah, I think that Goldfinger is credited as kind of really crystallizing this grander formula and having more fun with it. It's the first time they changed directors and Guy Hamilton was the director and I think he wanted to have a little be a little bit more camp with it. Terrence Young did the previous films and he was known to be kind of a James Bond himself, so I think he took it a little more seriously. Well, there were only two previous films to that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now there are what 25 we're about to get yeah, the 25. 25th is on its way. Depending on whether it holds for November. So to me, what, what one of the big questions, I mean, you're, this idea of like, you know, these gadgets that are five minutes into the future, I feel like, you know, there, there's been this, you know, this constant escalation since Goldfinger where the movies got, especially for, you know, through the, through the 70s and 80s, the movies got campier, the state of technology got better. And so the gadgetry sort of had to become more and more ridiculous. Yeah. Is it even possible to do an exciting but not ridiculous James Bond gadget these days? I think they have to go – they're doing a lot of throwbacks now, exploding watches and stuff. So they're using it as an out on not having to deal with that, but also kind of as a nod to the the past, same way they are with the classic Aston Martin and the Walther PPK. Along this line, how reasonable is it that James Bond is this extraordinary marksman? I guess he could only be as good as the best marksman, but as the movies will have you believe, he's impeccable, you know? One of the problems, apparently, now for a spy at the CIA, is, or for however you're working, is there was an old expression, which I thought was really charming, pocket litter. In other words, when you're found, when you've parachuted behind enemy lines, and you're captured, you have to have movie tickets or opera tickets from the right opera house, or Mm -hmm. they know you're the bad guy. All right, so along that line, apparently now you have to have a whole bunch of stuff on your phone. Oh, right. You have to have a whole bunch of hypothetical things on your phone. Uh, Do you feel that the modern movies cover that? They haven't done that kind of thing, but that's pretty good. And that reminds me of one of the operations that Fleming was actually responsible for in World War II, where he masterminded this operation where they took a a British soldier who had died, and I believe it was unidentified, and they put him in a uh, uniform and filled his pockets with false information and and false intelligence. letter from his girlfriend. It was called Operation Mincemeat. Mincemeat. Yeah, that's right. And and the Germans found it and ate up all the information and it was disinformation. Apparently enough middle-level people bought it for long enough. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like they they introduced enough of a question to delay things just a few days. So we have an email from John Hennessy. I've heard that the underwater sequences in Thunderball were revolutionary for the time. What advances in film technology allowed this to happen? And he says, I'm curious to hear about the concept of filming underwater in general. That's an interesting thing because 
Thunderball was the biggest blockbuster of its time, even bigger than Goldfinger. And I think part of that, well, the travelogue aspect of Bond is so huge, but now to go underwater. So what do you just, mean? T- tell us what you, the travelogue. Well, back in those days, in the 60s, you weren't just hopping on a Pan Am jet and going to Tokyo, you know, unless you had really special circumstances. So the Bond films were a way to vicariously travel and experience the world and see exotic sights. And so now to go underwater and not only go underwater and see that, but to see action happening, it was revolutionary. Now, when you watch Thunderball, it's kind of considered to be a real slog because there's a good 40 minutes of just slow moving armies kind of coming at each other. And we've seen <laughs> a, it a lot, a lot of like, yeah, the, the sort of like pointing at each other and mouthing things because they're underwater. Yeah. But then that movie has one of the best gadgets called the rebreather. And it looks just like two CO2 cartridges melted together with a piece in the middle that you put in your mouth. And it's just a portable, quick little underwater breeding apparatus. And apparently the government came to the filmmakers and said, how do you do that? We need that. And they, of course, said, well, it doesn't work. It's just movie magic. Along that line, in the science of the near future, we have an email from Mike Spano. And Mike asks, it gravitates toward the science of the near future, but what types of advancement science do you think that James will, he calls him James. Wow, first name basis. (laughs) What is he going to need in the year 2060? Like, wow. what is he going to have? A stolen nanofabricator? <laughs> a halo jump on Mars? Halo, everybody, is high altitude, low opening, air, uh, parachute opening, jump on Mars. Fighting the evil villain in a trendy underground habitat because of, I guess, climate change oh, has yeah. made the surface uninhabitable. Oh, yeah. Or maybe or maybe he'll, he'll have like a little genetic marker or something that, you know, that transforms himself into a superpower. He's going to need like a, a social media bot blocker more than anything, you know? Uh, well, yeah. So, so that, I mean, that is the question. I think, you know, we, we really feel it with the, with these Daniel Craig movies. Like what is a future bond gizmo? What is a future, what is a future bond fight sequence going to look like? Yeah, what do, And what, do what is the villain's plot going forward in the future? Let's spitball. Well, what do you imagine a future bond is, gizmo is or rage, a future right? bond action sequence will look like? Will they be in spacesuits? I I hope not. I think anytime Bond's gone to space, it's always been a jump the shark moment and they have to self-correct and go to, you know, after Moonraker came for your eyes only, which was really grounded. After Die Another Day, you get Casino Royale. And so, I don't know, maybe it forces you back, but I don't want to see him to go to space again. You know, nanotechnology and genetics and artificial intelligence, all these things just seem totally contrary to the... The sort of the machismo yeah. and the very kind and of like visible thinking, nature of what the Bond quick does. Thinking, the the yeah. absorbing all this information and doing running over to the crane and hitting it with yeah. the wrench so the yeah. other guy falls down and you get up. And yeah, the, I mean, James Bond curing global warming is just not the same thing. I get yeah. the feeling this new one has some genetic element. Well, they've said as much in the synopsis. He's some kind of geneticist. So it does feel like he's who, working who, on- Who is? The bad guy? The villain, yeah. His name is Safin. He's played by Rami Malek. And uh, he's up to something in- in terms of extending his life, or it's not been clear. But well, I feel, well, I feel like a like a bioterror plot seems within the yeah. within the realm of James Bond. I tell the young people, you know, I grew up with the space program, and so I got into physics and rockets and airplanes. Okay, stuff like that. More about me. But if you were coming along today, the thing that's going to change is genetics, man. Mm. CRISPR, clustered repeating interspace short palindromic okay. repeats. Yes, CRISPR. Yes. Yeah, and we all three said that. This is a very reasonable plot yeah. idea that, we, you know, everybody's been afraid of 
armies of jackbooted stormtroopers who are so uh, mentally deficient they can't think to question the boss's master plan. Yeah. And then uh, the reason we are able to feed 7.8 billion people in the world is because of genetic modification of crops. And uh, the, there was all James Bond film about water, right, mm -hmm. and the importance of water yep. uh, to the future. And so I can easily imagine some mastermind ruining one population's crops so that he could manipulate them and get what he wanted in another part of the world. And that happened in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, even though the, the convention of it was kind of ridiculous, where he had hypnotized these 12 women to go back to their home countries and release um, foot and mouth disease into all the crops of the different countries. Yes, it's, it's, an, it's an early bioterror plot. Yeah. So yeah, as, 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 as a MacGuffin, using genetic engineering or bioterror seems Perfectly bondy, and the producers are big on taking what the looming threat is and turning that into something. So, especially in the Craig areas, Casino Royale is terrorism. Quantum of Solace is water and climate change. Skyfall is uh, that one's a revenge story. But then Spectre's surveillance, and then I think this next one is genetic, something to do with genetics. Science rules. We'll be right back. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You're listening to Science Rules. Hey, Bill. This question is for you and Matt Gourley. Uh, this is Tom from Gulf, Ontario, Canada. Hoping you guys can explain the science behind what is unquestionably the greatest moment in the James Bond franchise, the Kananga Balloon. At the end of Live and Let Die, Yafit Kato's character, Kananga, the film's villain, is force-fed some sort of compressed gas pellet, causing him to inflate, float to the ceiling, and explode in absolutely ridiculous fashion. What's the science behind that? Thank you, guys. My co-host on James Bonding and I have an ongoing feud about w the worst moment in the whole franchise. I say it's this. He says it's when the pigeons in, I believe it's Moonraker, do a double take at James Bond's gondola in the Venetian canals turning into a little floating hovercraft. But the pigeon does a like bad edit double take. But this <laughs> thing where Kananga, Dr. Kananga, played by Yafet Kodo, Bond shoves what's called a shark bullet in his mouth, which is meant to inflate him. and he. It doesn't say anything about filling him full of helium gas, but for some reason he floats out of the water to the top of this cave and then explodes. And it's just ridiculous. For an otherwise great movie, it's just a really campy way to So end you it. heard it right there, everyone. Matt Gurley calls it an otherwise great movie. Right. I I love Living Light Die. One, one implausibility. Just <laughs> one implausibility really bring that movie down. I still contend it's the worst moment in the whole franchise because it's in, in you haven't seen the 25th, but you predict this. Will true. Remain yeah. I'm willing to predict because otherwise films. Kananga is this kind of really, uh, he's a dignified, really charismatic villain. And it just, it's such a silly end for him. Do you have anything you want to ask us about, you know, Corey's all about cosmology. 
I'm all oh. about mechanical and lasers. Things. We I think we both love lasers, and there are a lot of lasers in James Bond. Yeah. Well, I I can't get past this Kananga thing. So if if some little bullet went in you and started filling you with gas, <laughs> how much your body wouldn't turn into a balloon, right? It would just fissure in some place, right? It seems like your cheeks would explode first. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm he pretty makes sure him swallow that, yeah. it. I think so. Let's assume it at least gets into his stomach or something or esophagus. Would it? I how mean, much? You, would you it can do you that? can you can inflate a stomach or or intestines up to a point. You know. Well, as you say, there 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 are two big problems with it. One is that you know he inflates this enormous size without popping or springing a leak or anything. But the other is that he floats away like a helium balloon. Yeah, that's almost more troubling. <laughs> He's underwater. And he seems though, to right? hit something on the ceiling and pop. He is originally, yeah. and then he floats out of water. But they the footage looks so bad that they do a post-production zoom into his cheeks because I don't think they wanted you to see the whole thing. And the film gets all grainy. So and the editing's really bad in the moment. The whole thing's a mess. Uh was yeah, it, it, looked, it looks very latex when you get up close. Yeah. Was it derivative of Goldfinger getting sucked out of the airplane? It's, yeah, it's like the, the opposite. Kind of, yeah. I say that's it, not a not uh, favorite of mine either. That just looks so bad as well. Yeah. Oh wait, Bill, I have a medical question for you. Sure. Uh, if you expert, cover you know. a if you cover a naked person with gold paint, would they die from suffocation? And if you leave a small patch uncovered near the base of the spine, would they survive? Well, apparently, circus performers, according to Bond, James Bond, did that. So, uh, Matt, do you have a favorite or least favorite Bond girl, Bond woman? Yeah, Vesper oh, Lind from Casino Royale. I I just love her because she's the most complex. It's a wonderfully written role. The performance is fantastic. It's the original Bond girl. It's what sets him up to be kind of a flawed misogynist. Not that I'm rooting for him to become that, but it at least puts an answer to what had otherwise been just glib, you know, tossing off of relationships and stuff. It just it has a lot of dimension to it. I love that role. And she, everybody, it, I don't want to spoil it, but things go badly. They, yeah, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, things go badly. They have a lovely relationship, and then and then things go badly. Yeah, but I love and, Diana Rigg too. Her, it's all down to how well the roles are written. And on Her Majesty's Secret Service is in many ways her film, just as much as Bond's. And I think that's what makes it interesting. And that's the one where he gets married. Yeah, he gets married, but then things go wrong, go yeah. badly for that it too. Doesn't you know? go it's, well. It's it's that is there are some downsides to being James Bond. Well, yeah, yeah. relationships. Well, the, the guy, relationship stability. Is I problem. think yeah. I think we could all agree he's a lonely guy. Yeah, and that's what and, I like about the uh, books is he's he's a really flawed character and kind of sociopathic in ways that the movie's asking you to really be on the side of him. And the Craig films are a little bit more like. You know, watch this guy from a distance. He's not your everyday hero. He's got some problems. By watch him from a distance, you mean keep him at arm le- arm's length? Yeah, don't fall in love with him the way you would a Roger Moore Bond. You know, this this is meant to be a man who's got some issues. So he's not a hero a hundred percent. He's brave, but he's not a hero in the sense that a superhuman would be. He's a hired assassin, right? Yeah, he's a he's an assassin, and in some ways, he's a psychopath in Casino Royale and a sociopath, and you know, he's why is he a psychopath in Casino Royale? Well, he just is detached from, uh, for instance, the sort of um, sacrificial lamb Bond girl in that movie. Solange is tortured and murdered because of his connection with her. 
And M says, you know, I would, I would basically scold you about this, but you don't really care, do you? And he just goes, no, you know, he's, Mm. he's kind of, I don't know if it's narcissism, but more sociopath that just, he, he lacks empathy. But he, the thing I love about his tenure, too, is he starts to gain that through the films, especially in losing Vesper and not wanting to go through that again. He's becoming a better person. That's been nice. Even better. Because <laughs> what he has is <laughs> this thing bar. we all want, you know, what I would describe as uh, the fighter pilot calm. You know, yes. where no matter yeah. what's going on, the guy is focused. We all wish we had that. Yeah. At some he's level. got the fighter pilot calm. But the other thing, as you emphasized in the beginning, he's got Q. That, you know, that's sort of his, the secret weapon is his, you know, his, yeah. his secret weapon and better provider. better than the fighter this guy pilot who, calm. Yeah, this is, guy who's got the best, the, he's got the best tech in the world. He's better than the fighter pilot calm is he's got the beat your exposed testicles with a carpet beater calm. <laughs> And that's uh, that's also from the book. That's yeah. Also, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything in these movies that you find realistic, or that are actually is actually good spying, good uh, tradecraft? Oh, yeah. Is is yeah. James Bond a good spy? Often he's not. He's often going around announcing his arrival, saying his name, and that's something I love about the Bond, the Craig franchise too. Is he comes right out of the gate saying, "I'm Bond," but I'm doing that to let him know that I know he knows who I am. So that's part of his tradecraft, where in the Roger Moore era, which I love for different reasons, he just comes in, I'm Bond, James Bond, I'm the world's greatest spy, take a look at me, it's bad news. In the early ones from Russia with Love, it feels like- He's just some guy. He's just some guy. Yeah, and it feels like a Hitchcock North by Northwest kind of shoe leather detective story. So there's something for everyone in these Bond movies, and I, I love those ones especially. Right, but 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 does he ever do good spy work? I think he does in in From Russia with Love and Doctor No. Um, the longer the films go on, the less effective an actual detective spy he is. I think. Well, you know, I think about Casino Royale, where he has to he bends down to tie his shoe, and he gets he bumps the other guy's car to get distracted. Yeah. yeah, he's good in Casino Royale. He's got some good tradecraft. I love Skyfall as a film, but he's a horrible spy. In fact, he fails in every element of that movie to protect M. She dies. Silva gets what he wants. I don't know how much the screenwriters were thinking about how much he failed because you don't realize it at the end. Corey! That's not the sound of a stunt. That's the sound of thunder, which means it's time for lightning. Matt, are you ready? The lightning round. Are you grounded? That's, I, a, that's I'm wearing rubber soled shoes. Way to go. What is your favorite gadget? <laughs> My favorite gadget is the original Aston Martin. No, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. And that car, by the way, has global positioning somehow. He's got yeah, map, early but, yeah. global positioning, but yeah. you had to stay within a certain range. What's your favorite stunt? The one where Daniel Craig and Casino Royale jumps from crane to crane because they did it practically, and it, it's just incredible. Some athlete yes, jump, did the jump. Some uh, amazing stuntman. Two. Two guys did it because they yeah. were chasing uh, each other. Yeah, yeah, that's that the parkour. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the guys who are able to jump. If you are held captive in a villain's lair and given a laptop with only enough memory for three Bond films. <laughs> oh, <laughs> In the Which in the in the choose? Bond tradition, it's a very specific question. <gasps> well, Casino Royale, the modern one, yes, not David. No, Newman, God, no. Uh-uh. Yeah. Casino Royale, um, Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, and 
a view to a kill and people are shouting at their my eyebrows iPads. have gone up I, I know I my my, my eyebrows have gone off the top of my I head know. and they're actually flooding above no. me like like one of those Captain well, Crunch characters this is the thing with with James Bond and many other things is you like who you like everybody out there should enjoy what they enjoy and that one is so out there and campy but I still love it it hit me at a time it's very it's a nostalgic favorite for me and I adore it I, I love the Duran Duran video yeah. that goes with it yeah. also. Yeah. The name is Bone. Simon the Bone. <laughs> yes. Wow, you guys are, are into it. Uh, <laughs> which Bond movie is the most realistic, scientifically speaking? I'd say From Rush with Love or Casino Royale. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where he's a serious guy yeah. solving serious problems. Or, or For Your Eyes Only as well. What happens in For Your Eyes They're Only? They're just after so a code-breaking machine, same as Russia with from Russia with Love. And it's really just a you know, chase film through the Alps and and Greece and stuff. So it's, there's nothing highfalutin about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you just drive your car down a ski slope and you're firing weapons with silencers. It's, it's yeah. pretty routine. Uh, so if you could erase one film from your memory, one of the bond for just, just let it go from our, from let's say our collective memory, what would it be? Is this because I don't like it or because I get to see it again for the first time? Ooh, let's take them both. Okay, if I'm getting rid of one, for me, it's the world is not enough because it's a Brosnan one that is so middle of the road and wants to have it always, and I just find it to be neither good nor bad, and it so I never revisit it. But but Casino Royale, if I could revisit that with not having seen it, because I remember the first time I saw it and. I, oh, I just about it was fainted. cool. It yeah. really is cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the modern version. Yeah. yeah. All right. Who should be the next Bond? James oh, Bond. We get this question a lot, and you know, there's a lot of people thrown around. Tom Hardy. Uh, just to be clear, nobody on this podcast is. We're all off limits. Yeah, so you, we yeah. can't. I mean, don't gonna, even ask us. us. Don't ask us. Yeah, yeah. We're. we're, we're uh, I need. Uh, it would be conflict of interest. Yeah, well, and I'd need a lot of sort of uh, uh, restorative uh, surgery. I'd need what, prosthetics. I might need lifts in my shoes also. Um, And a lot of people have talked about Idris Elba, which I love. I think he's fantastic. But a a lot of people also have this, whether it's a a good complaint or not, that he's a little too old if he's going to do a number of films in the franchise. But then there's this actor that I saw on a show called Fortitude. His name is Nicholas Pinnock. And he's now on a network show called for life or something where he's been in jail and he has to defend himself, but he's just got that like heavy charisma and gravitas. And I think, I think he's English and he just, he's my guy. And you, I've never heard his name thrown out there at all, but hmm. I think he well, that's why you're here to out throw it. I, I get him in there. What do you think about a woman bond or Jane bond? Um, you know, I don't have a problem with it for any sort of political reasons at all. I'd be curious to do. See, I would be curious to see all of this. I think I'd also like to see a Bond set in the 60s and 50s again as a period piece when you can really explore the social mores of that time from a current lens. So to also see a female Bond would be really interesting to see what they do with that. I know this upcoming film, one of the actresses is a double O, and I think they're going to be getting into the conventions of of what it is to be a current double O and a female double O. And I'm excited to see that too, especially since Phoebe Waller-Bridge had a hand in writing that. Have you written a, a script? Have you? I've never so, written a James Bond script. Uh, how yeah. hard could it be? I think about it sometimes, <laughs> but you, yeah. First we go to Athens, <laughs> then we go... 
to Tokyo, then we go to Seoul, and now we're in Sydney. What? Yeah, water, snow. <laughs> some bad person wears some kind of smock without collars, and you're fine. And you're golden. Yeah. Pun intended. Yeah. Hey, man, this has been great. Oh, it's my this pleasure. This has just been cool. Thank you. But thank you. Our guest today has been none other than Matt Gorley, who uh, hosts some other podcasts, if you have yeah, time. Yeah, too many to mention. Super yeah. Ego, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, Bananas for Bonanza, and of course, James Bonding. Matt, thank you so much. You've shown some light on the science of the world of Bond, James Bond. Remember, when it comes to saving the world, even if you're, for some reason, not a double O agent, science rules. And if you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Helps us find out what you want to listen to. So be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or write and submit a question at askbillnye.com. Askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Hey, glad to be here. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science rules. rules. Be safe out there. Stitcher. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.